Hello and welcome to the Landmark Theatre's Q&A podcast. Today we'll hear a discussion with director Autumn DeWild and director of photography Chris Blauvelt about their new film, Emma, moderated by filmmaker Gus Van Sant. This conversation was recorded at the Landmark in Los Angeles on the film's opening weekend. Hi, thanks. Um, and let's uh, bring Autumn DeWild down. And director of photography, Chris, Christopher Blauvelt. Oh my God. Let's talk about punk rock. Yeah. That's fun. Okay, Who's your favorite it. band? <laughs> uh, starting when? Uh, like 78. 78, it was... Too long ago. Yeah, no. Easy. No, Ass. eight years old. Uh, it was probably Bing Crosby. Punk <laughs> <laughs> years. Yeah, the punk years. <laughs> um, I mean, it's... I This is the second time I've seen it. It's just like an amazing piece, and I'm s- very surprised and very um, inspired, and... Uh, oh, Chris is going to take pictures. Um <coughs> And, uh, well, I and he's saying really cool things. Hold on. Kind of don't know what to say in, in a way because um, it's um, there's so many like intricate um, little little things that um, are so clear and beautiful and touching and um, you know it makes me see Jane Austen uh, for the first time really. Um, so how'd you do that? <laughs> Or maybe uh, like how did how did it start? How did the um, project start? Because I think I heard that it was um, somebody suggested that you um, sort of throw your hat in the ring. Yeah, yeah. So I like dropped my phone when I heard. And I was like, holy shit. <laughs> um, and and yeah, so I was uh, invited to pitch on it. I mean, after a conversation or two and. Um, and then I had about a month to prepare, so I went down this like deep rabbit hole. I've kind of always been obsessed with etiquette history in general and like that time period in general. And then I went deep into the book. Um, and then I sort of realized how funny Jane Austen was, which it's kind of like Shakespeare, like it requires the translation of old words and maybe understanding the meaning of a joke. And you know, I, I really gave myself the time. Uh, to start unlocking that. And then I, I sort of felt like I wanted to, um, I wanted to bring that out. And then, and then I, I'm a big, like I'm obsessed with screwball comedy, like bringing up baby and his girl Friday. And I, I sort of thought it would be interesting to bring an American physical comedy style into it. Because uh, I think like there's, there's so many layers of passive aggressive behavior. <laughs> um, which I kind of, I don't know, even just in, you know, you go to a party where everyone hates each other and, and I, I find that endlessly fascinating, like what people say out loud and what you can, it's so clear they're thinking, you know, and so I kind of want to... in life? In life, yeah. And in screwball comedy and in Jane Austen. Exactly, and screwball comedy, because of that time period, there is a formality, you know, which makes like Catherine Hepburn wilder because she's like... She's 
Yeah, she, yeah, because everyone else is so uptight. It's funnier because she's, yeah, wild. So since I knew sort of Emma had to go through this transformation, um, I kind of wanted that transformation to be like the springs are popping out, you know, of the clock. Um, yeah, and or her curls are getting looser. Yes, her okay. curls. There was a whole like curl story going on. Um, for real, I know it sounds like a joke, but I kind of am really obsessive about stuff like that. And clothes, you know, sometimes she's wearing a collar that makes her seem like a dragon lady. You know, there was a lot of design in telling you like how bad Emma was being at the, in that moment, and and uh, and, uh, and and sometimes it was the, the design was to show her immaturity. You know, her curls are kind of up front. And she's like a little girl and um, who could never do wrong. You know, and and uh, so, but the, the a lot of the details came from uh, not only like fashion illustrations and and a lot of weird like. The, the cool thing about Jane Austen is there's so many people that love her that there is endless blogs like focusing on like like two seconds of the book, you know. So I kind of went deep into all those theories and kind of pulled out the ones I liked. Who's writing the blogs? Just, you know, this was the thing. Once I had a researcher, you know, like an expert, I had to say like, is this just some random dude that said this or is this fact, you know? And sometimes they don't know. Like it's a, it's a lot of mystery surrounding uh, you know, her... It's conspiracy theories. And yeah, conspiracy theories. Yeah, they think her doctor killed her by accident because arsenic was like, it makes wallpaper pretty and it kills rats and it might make you feel better. It was kind of like... <laughs> but the, like the comedy of man manners in the book of, the, of Emma, um, so when you were sort of deciphering it, 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 was it something that you had already read when you were younger? Yeah, but I don't think I really got, I think because she's so great at romance, at writing a familiar epic, like, I think that whole thing about Mr. Knightley and Emma is like, when Harry met Sally, or like, you know, like cop shows, like where the, you know, moonlighting or whatever, you know, it's so, you could really gravitate towards the love story and just kind of, um, right. yep. skip the other stuff. Yeah, the yeah. Stuff. yeah, 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 the good stuff. and. So the good stuff when you're when you're deciphering Jane Austen with the help of the blogs and the <laughs> researchers and your own re research, you're writing notes on yeah. every page and you're. Um, I had a big like image library uh, that was a lot of. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Um, no, no. Oh yeah, uh, a lot of caricatures. Like, I kind of was thinking. Since she was, I, I realized like some of the jokes were only understood through the understanding the language and understanding like the rules of the time period. And so I started looking at a lot of, you know, cartoonists work of that time period because they were poking fun at those people too in a really exaggerated, colorful oh, yeah. way. And so I actually got a lot of ideas like her warming her butt by the fire and and all that from illustrations like of the cartoonists that were like isn't fashion now ridiculous or like look at these crazy ladies or like you know poking fun at the rich you know and i kind of think she was too and you know and she was poke she was really a great satirist of small town life which is why i think like we can identify those characters like in our office or in a small town or in a high school you know so and so, like, if if when you understand, say, the certain like bits of comedy of manners, um, moments, then you uh, applying it with acting, you know, is very hard. And I um, also heard from the Jonah Hill um, 
show, <laughs> which was very funny, um, that you went to drama school. I did. I did. I w which was something I kept secret in my early rock photography days, because I was like, if they find out I was a drama nerd, I'm screwed, you know? <laughs> and, then, and then it became one of the most essential tools I had, because I had learned all the disciplines of acting. And What was the school? Uh, it was just LACC Theater Academy, uh, but it was a three-year program, and I mean, I couldn't afford to go to college, and there was a really hot guy that went there, so that was reason enough for me. <laughs> And so, were you able to to bring that back in Abs to yeah. play? Did uh, you were you acting yourself back then? You mean uh, in oh, in school? photography or in, well, school? in school? I was, yeah, I wanted to be an actor. I was sort of, I looked a lot more like olive oil back then, um, a lot more like Mrs. Elton, and that my and and Miranda Hart, like that. She's six foot two as well, so my whole goal was like a Shelley Duvall kind of direction. You know, like physical comedy. I kind of wanted to be like the like stork Peter Sellers sort of, you know. Um, but I, I just, I didn't love the the life of auditioning. I, I was, I was pretty comfortable with rejection because I was six foot two and like I knew nobody wrote the part for me. Um, <laughs> so, but I just the the sort of I felt this sadness before I went in around the actors. And I was hanging out with bands that were my friends, and I was, it just felt more like my world, you right. know? And so I just kind of abandoned acting, and, and I had a reason to be there because I took photos, so. Great. Um, oh, I have one more question before we ask the audience to ask questions. Um, um, you were talking about, I think, um, something that was applying to this film, but it was um, your like kiss in the Denny's parking lot, of <laughs> <laughs> which was descriptive of like certain parts of this movie of like how the character, well, yeah, how the characters are um, sort of feeling. And um, can you describe that? Yeah, um, I, I was just, I think the. I, I wanted the rooms to be transformed by the behavior as it is, I think, in real life. Like, you know, a room feels like, you know, the room feels like this sort of most comforting place on earth with her father, and it becomes a sensual, like, when the screen comes in front of them, which was the day that we choreographed that. I went up to Chris and I was like, is this gonna work? It's really stupid. <laughs> Because it was my idea, and Eleanor Catton, the screenwriter, is a genius. So I was like, "Oh my God, this one's my idea. I'm where I'm fucked." But, um, but uh, <laughs> luckily, I think it worked. But, but and and like Harriet and Emma, like that sort of sensual friendship of like the, your first best friend, um, which there is like a true love kind of, you know, especially if it's before you've ever kissed anyone. I think it can be. I mean, one of the greatest loves of your life, that first, like, uh, soulmate, best friend. And so um, her bedroom, Harriet's bedroom, transforms with the tragedy of them, you know, break, we called it the breakup, you know. But um, anyway, so the story you're asking about is that I was, you know, I, there was this guy, I was, 
I we had was we hadn't kissed yet. I really liked him, and we were in the rock and roll Denny's, which was uh, at the time it was called. It's not there anymore. It was on near Guitar Center, and it was like this really crappy parking lot, and uh, it smelled bad, you know. And and there was a homeless guy that looked a bit aggressive over there, and I was like. <laughs> Fuck. I kind of knew it was coming and I really wanted to kiss him and I was like, this is the worst place. <laughs> and then we kissed and I was like, this, this parking lot's incredible. I was like, the, I remember noticing the like graphic lines in the parking lot, like that pattern is genius. I've never noticed. And then the like homeless guy started singing a song just for us, you know? And I, I was like, have you ever noticed that the lights are like amber colored? Like, you know, and so I, I've thought a lot about that moment and how in Los Angeles is, is so much like that. You're, someone's like, I hate LA, and then it's like something really sexy happens, and they're like, I fucking love this city. <laughs> <laughs> so that, yeah, that's that story. That's an awesome story. <laughs> um, oh, I should also ask Chris just a uh, visual question. Sexy parking lot. <laughs> I was like, make the that kiss scene like a sexy parking lot. definitely sang to me many times at the. Really? Time. At the Rock and Roll Denny's? Yeah. yeah, what was the sort of, well, I mean, all the colors, um, I mean, that seemed like Yeah, we embraced difficult. it. We embraced um, showing the colors the way we did. And uh, we had a lot of Autumn's uh, research to look at. And uh, I mean, all the departments, you know, wardrobe and uh, our um, production designer would, you know, we would sit in rooms and look at swatches and colors and really embrace that era. And also embrace the idea that it was new to them. You know, like a lot of times, like uh, dated movies are are antiqued and they look older. Right. But in real life, if you're living in that age, it's you know they were it was much more new. So we embraced that, and that became a huge part of our look. Yeah, and color was how uh, well people showed their wealth, and yeah, and so that and the wallpaper is accurate for the time period, and and the colors are accurate. Um, I mean, we did a heightened style, but the way Chris lit it. You know, you have to be careful when you're working with color like that because if you you light it and you're telling someone it's fake, I mean, as no matter how beautifully they make the set or how realistic they make the set, if you screw up the lighting, then it can all look like, um, you know, a Disneyland ride, which is not a bad thing. I may do that someday, but, you know, in this case, <laughs> I mean, I love Disneyland. So. Sorry, that's another, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um. Is it time now? Oh, it's time, okay. So any questions? Uh, so he asked how uh, how you make the jump, how I made the jump from like uh, the difference between shooting musicians and eventually making a film, which it, it does seem like a big leap, but um, I think I, my, I, I don't like being photographed so much, so I, I, I had probably gravitated towards musicians that also disliked um, being photographed because I wanted to help them because I sort of like it was a time in indie rock when it felt like uh, only people who were really like it was like a pop stars only kind of world and there was this what was under felt underground at the time in indie rock and I wanted them to be noticed so I was kind of using acting techniques but you know I didn't want to admit it to them but you know I was using acting techniques to help give them a character to hide behind so I, most of the photos, I, I sort of pretended they were scenes from movies, and most of my inspiration for photos of bands and musicians came from movies like Gus's movies, like my own Private Idaho I referenced a lot, actually. 
Um, and that sort of like the reckless vulnerability of like the, you know, the two main characters and that. And there, those kind of movies were so rock and roll in my, my, the way I felt. And so a lot of times I was, I think by giving a musician a movie or a couple of movies or asking them about a movie and then saying, well, let's just pretend we're in that movie without the set dressing or anything, then they're, they're playing pretend and that's play and play is attractive and play is more fun. So I suppose like over the years I was making all these little movies that never got made. And I, I do think that process helped me with actors eventually and it is still a big leap, but it was a part of the stepping stone. Uh, are there, is there satisfaction? Yeah, like those Well, yeah, it's a dream come true, yeah. Was there yeah. also, um, <clears throat> I also heard that, you know, like it was, this is your first film, but were there other films that you got close to making? There was one, I was gonna make a teen movie and Chris and I, um, we were 10 days away from shooting it and the financing fell through. And it was, it was super heartbreaking. And then I realized that I wasn't put off at all. And I was like, oh fuck, I'm really, oh sorry. There's a kid here, sorry. Anyway, I was like, uh, hopefully she's asleep. I think asleep. she's asleep. Um, uh, and then I realized I was like so hooked that it hadn't discouraged me at all, even though it was, it took a long time to get over that. But I was, it, it may actually told me like for sure I wanted to do it, you know, I suppose. Well, and it wasn't a loss of time either. Like we prepped, like we were almost shooting. So yeah. we got through all that prep and shot listing and all the things. So it was a bit more knowledge heading into this. It's you know, true. So. Yeah. I, in a way, I got to audition. Audition. I got to practice making, doing the prep, you know. I mean, anytime I've had a huge disappointment, I've always tried to clock what I learned. Otherwise, you'd, I would just have crumbled a long time ago. But... Um, <laughs> But yeah, I think because we were so close to making the movie, I think that prep was an invaluable experience before uh, before we made this film. Yeah. How long? How long ago was that? The uh, other film. So like two, two years. It ago? feels like two years, Only but I think it was. Uh, we made the, we started making this movie like a year and a half, That's so true. I know it was like yeah. it might be five years or something. That's yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, okay, so she wants to know, she's glad that there was a hangnail in the close-up of the hands, which I love that you like that. Yeah, we, I mean, I was, there was no makeup uh, except for, you know, I think just some basic, like, but I really, I really wanted the, yeah, I wanted the, uh, as beautiful and put, to, I wanted to feel how the perfection from the, the handiwork of the maid that had put her together or the girls together or if they had to do their own. I didn't want to feel like it was a Hollywood movie that had done it, but there was the the the, the things women did to get ready was it was incredible enough. So it was, I think those little things. I did think about like the only thing I you know VF like the only VFX we did was was just tiny little things that were not vanity things. They were like to uh, just a little more color for the autumnal scenes and stuff like that. But we st I stayed away from the perfection of the female body, especially because I think that bo that bothers me a lot. I forgot. I like well, that was a long answer for the hangnail. I forgot what you asked. Uh, I forgot what you. What did she ask? 
Oh no, it's okay. Yeah, uh, the why was it important to tell Emma? I I think that uh, I think that we've all had an Emma in our life, and probably most of us think we're Harriet. But if you really late at night really think about it, you've been Emma too. Um, and um, and I think like it's like a you know I think she's an iconic character because it's something that we can't quite resolve. And I thought perhaps that. I thought this movie perhaps it is a romantic fantasy, but it's also like a father fantasy, and it's also a friendship fantasy where that girl that's like such a jerk to you, but you love her so much, like has this crazy epiphany and changes. Uh, I hope that happens in your life, but I don't know that happens that often. And we, I, that's why I want to go to a movie and have that escape. But and also not demonizing. It's the closer you get to people, the they're the only ones that can really hurt you, you know, is if they have the potential to be your greatest love, you know, so. Yeah. Well, he's, I mean, he demands a lot of fashion attention. <laughs> and I think, I'm not sure he would have agreed to if he didn't know that I knew that. And he, he came into this first uh, meeting with Alexander Byrne, he's like, no britches. And she was like, which are the, the short pants, you know, and um, she's like, you're very lucky because right at 1815, the trousers were coming in. So he was like, that's for me. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, I, I, again, in, in looking, doing a lot of research and well, I, I don't, there have been movies where they go into the fashions of that time of like, uh, oh God, sorry. Um, it's like a whole thing. Thank you. Yeah. Um, uh, so I don't want to say no movie has ever done it, but but the you know when you look at the fashion illustrations, there's like plaids mixed with floral patterns, and the men had and color in their clothing, and and I really that was really important to me. Um, you know, I but I think you know it's possible in movies in the past there'd be like, whoa, hold on, that's a little too girly. Let's just back off that. But um, that's def definitely never my concern, and I. I also like the the it was really important I mean I think it might seem that Mr. Knightley is undressing just for you know the thrill but I had never I felt like I'd never seen a movie where I saw all you know I've been watching women like you know oh it's this piece and then the corset and the, you know and I I just hadn't seen the whole thing and then when they when Alexandra Byrne explained to me like and showed me I asked her to show me exactly the whole dressing process for a man and I realized that they men and women both wore dresses underneath their clothes and stockings over their knees. And I thought that was really important to show the similarity in, you know, there's there's all this crap every, you know, generation about this is manly and that's feminine and this is manly and that's feminine. When you go through fashion history, you're like, well, it's all ridiculous, you know? Um, and so I, th I really wanted to show, you know, that what someone might call feminine now was, the, you know, what made a man um, back then, and I thought that that was um, that was interesting. And he's really pretty. <laughs> also, just in real life, though, has anybody seen Bill in real life? He's like just a, he's a perfect. Oh man. yeah, he's like yeah, Bill not the Nighy. best style. Like you just want to be him when you yeah, grow up. Yeah, Bill. Going back to Bill, Bill Nighy inspires a lot of fashion. Yeah. Yeah, actually, Room with a View. I think that that pond scene where they is one of the most beautiful uses of male nudity, um, you know, because 
it's not like, haha, look at their naked. You know, it's just, I feel like there's a lot of times it's like, it's like, ha, we're seeing their butt, you know, and uh, which is, I guess, fine sometimes. But, you know, in Room with a View, it just felt like this like private view into these men like doing something that they could only do with each other because of that time period. But it also just reminded me of like, because I, I was like one of the guys, you know, and I had, I've had some experiences like on the road with bands where something like that happened, but it wasn't like, look at me, I'm naked, or like, don't you think I'm hot? You know, it's this like total abandonment of self-consciousness. And, and I just, I thought, yeah, so that, that's a big inspiration for me, that scene. And yeah. Uh, well, my, I mean, I, it, it's an iconic story. So people could endlessly interpret how, what their Emma is. So I'm only going to speak about what I, what, you know, my Emma became. And what I realize is that she's not really a matchmaker. She really only match, matches, she's not a Yenta. She really only matches two people. And she makes sure, you know, she's committed to taking care of her aging father. She has, that is what she's going to do for the rest of her life. So her matching Miss Taylor, her governess, is matching to someone that's maximum five miles away. So she'll never lose her. She'll lose her in the house, but she won't lose her. And then she picks a friend, like a new puppy, but she's never had any practice having a friend. You know, girls of her stature were were educated alone with a governess. She didn't go to a school with a bunch of girls around her and find a natural other. So what practices she had? And then I think that what she realizes quickly is that this person is not disposable and she is desperately wants to figure out how to keep her um, captive in her dollhouse and matching her to the vicar who would probably visit every day because they're the well one of the wealthiest families in the town. So to me, it's like more of a young girl who's trying to manipulate a situation to keep these things, these little dolls that she wants to collect and just doesn't know like the, the repercussions of playing with people's lives yet, you know? And she's extraordinarily intelligent. And I think maybe we've all known someone who is too, so intelligent you know, that you sort of give them a lot more credit than maybe they're ready for because they're so immature emotionally. Everyone has these, develops these muscles at different times and sometimes they're really out of whack and, and that kind of person can hurt, can hurt a lot because they seem like they should be smarter than that. Well, I, I try not to think about that I, I, because I, I do think, you know, I wasn't trying to make the ultimate Emma because I just kind of think that's a mistake. Like, I don't think, you know, I, I, I want, I love classic stories. I, I, they're classic because you can relate them to things in your life and experience of you've, experiences you've had no matter how much time has passed. And so for me, I just kind of tried to create it from the heart, the sort of relationships and the things in it that I saw that related to, memories I had and maybe the tales that were building in my head and my obsession with Jane Austen, which was growing. Um, so, but I did, one thing that was important to me was to not dumb down the language out of fear of it not being understood. I was using a lot of physical comedy and the actors were doing a lot of work. There's a lot, a lot of this movie is kind of like a ballet where you might think there's talking, but there isn't. And so I thought, 
you know, for the Jane Austen fans, they know what's being said, and maybe for someone who's not catching every word or not sure of every name, they're getting a lot of distinctive character uh, differences and wants and obsessive need and stuff from the non-speaking moments. So uh, one more, way back in the, up in the, up, yes. Yeah, it, um, it, was, it was something that Eleanor Catton and I discussed a lot because Jane Austen didn't write about, she only wrote about things she knew. Uh, that, you know, so that's why she never wrote about the war and she didn't really write much about men speaking privately. Um, and she didn't know really the intimately the lives of servants. Uh, and so, I mean, that's, these are all theories, you know, and so they're not mentioned a lot except for I really gravitated towards this one part of Emma where it was said that Mr. Woodhouse preferred this one servant because she closed the door more quietly than the others. <laughs> And I, th you know, I grew up in LA and um, on the east side, and and we didn't have very much money. And the first time I went to Beverly Hills to like a really fancy home, uh, everyone was sort of the their the their family was behaving, you know, like having their little tiffs and art and annoyances. And there were maids there, and they all pretend they pretended the maids weren't there. And the maids pretended that there wasn't a fight going on. And I just, it, it was so unfamiliar to me that I thought it was kind of ridiculous. Um, and, but we, you know, but, uh, but it, you know, not, not just in a judgment, that's how they were, those, that person was raised, you know. And, and, and so I thought a lot about, um, Eleanor Catton and I talked a lot about the lack of privacy in their lives, which is a lot of wealthy people, you know, I've noticed that, you know, there there's people everywhere to manage this giant house, you know, and um, and so I just thought it might be interesting to use them to help us know where the privacy was, where the private moments were, and also rather than going inside the servants. Uh, life it was interesting to just start to sense how the servant felt about something but not go any further than that and I, I thought that might be funny to just have this you know eat, the more you watch the movie you could elaborate on maybe what Bartholomew and Charles are thinking but um we had a lot of backstory you know like Bartholomew is like really into pleasing Mr. Woodhouse and is like this is my like this is my life and Charles is a little bit like okay buddy just back off um so um but you know they were also i i had this image of emma's life as like a clock you know like one of those cuckoo clocks and so the servants sort of were kind of like they never almost rarely they, they almost never walked in straight lines so that everyone is always circling um and taking the long way around and uh, so they also served a visual purpose to sort of show how the perfection of her and her father's kind of like how they, their day was run. And that way when like, you know, things start going nuts, like she starts feeling like, you know, the passion, um, everything's like everyone's a hot mess and like the, the everything starts kind of like stuttering. And so they were, they were there for a visual metaphor as well. I think that's a long answer. <laughs> that was great. Um, is that it? All right. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you guys so much. Thanks for listening to the Landmark Theatre's Q&A podcast. 
If you want to hear more conversations with filmmakers about the latest independent, foreign, and documentary films opening at Landmark Theaters, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app or visit our podcast website at landmarktheaters.podbean.com. You can also check out our YouTube channel for videos of Q&As and other exclusive content. See you next time.